This is the Balancing Act by Security Compass, your guide to going fast while staying safe in today's digital world. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We have a special guest, Mark. Mark, welcome to the discussion today. Yeah, thanks, Alphonse. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start, Mark, uh, by giving our audience uh, a brief introduction to who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, my privilege. So uh, yeah, my name is Mark. I'm based in Toronto. Uh, my passion is decision science. My profession is uh, measurement and comparison. And right now, the coolest thing I'm doing with my time uh, is helping to build a decision science research capability at one of Canada's big five banks. Wonderful. That sounds pretty amazing. So why don't we dive right into it? You know, you talk about decisions. We talk about all these various security programs that are out there. Um, tell me, Mark, like what motivates people to embrace a security program? Right. Well, I mean, and, and like the first core answer, the meta answer, if you will, is in the fact that I'm not declaring affiliation to any one bank right now. Uh, the biggest message that I could put out there is that facts don't change minds. Friendship does. Those aren't my words, right? People have written on about that, uh, or people who have written about that include James Cleary and Elizabeth Colbert, to name a few. Uh, but the point is, um, people want to do things that the humans around them think are cool. Uh, people want to avoid behaviors that the humans around them will condemn or, or don't acknowledge. So one big obstacle to adoption is effectively you have like a system of technological experts who are constantly aware of everyday threats that are emerging and evolving. And they're trying to communicate the truth about these threats to human beings that don't even acknowledge their existence. And so the core thing that I've seen that promotes adoption is really getting to know the humans that interact with your technology, uh, understanding where they are and where you need to meet them, as opposed to you know, sort of sharing everything that you ever learned about ransomware, by example, um, and, then, and then determining how they need to understand or how they need to receive information that will help them make smarter decisions with technology. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I've had several discussions with people and they're, they're really injecting in this human aspect to security now. And it's sort of this human centeredness around this whole model. How, you know, how do we balance the technical side with how this is actually going to work with the people that are going to be responsible and accountable for these activities. So why don't we, why don't we kind of go down that path a little bit? Uh, because now we're starting to talk about intended behavior. Sure. What, in your opinion, are some of these things that trigger the intended behavior? Right. Well, I mean, uh, you know, we're all just on our own journeys proceeding, uh, you know, on our own paths, trying to achieve the things that we think are cool and that we want in life. Um, and then, like, we develop relationships with our technology, uh, our devices, um, and, and the people around us. And, th and then we actually build uh, something that, you know, others call overconfidence, right? There is a thing out there called the Kruger-Dunning or Dunning-Kruger effect, where people with the least amount of knowledge dramatically overestimate their competency in certain areas of specialty. So, um, you know, one thing that can trigger an incident of any kind is a human being um, interacting with something that they think is uh, exactly the same as something else. And of course, by the time that they find out that this email that they've opened or this link that they've clicked on is different than a previous email that it looked like, uh, the money's already gone. And the money's gone in a way that maybe leaves them uh, stranded or uh, harms their family. So, so the top, one of the top uh, factors or triggers for me is just general overconfidence. 
Um, another thing that's actually a, a work, a deep, uh, sorry, trigger for, for uh, non-compliance or suboptimal uh, technological behavior is distraction. No one ever intends to click on a phishing link. People know what malicious links are in general, uh, but when you're going through your email whilst you're driving your car, that's, that's not the best idea. But this is, you know, humans are, are taking on a lot more today, especially after COVID, where a lot of us are working from home. Uh, you know, the boundaries between work and uh, not work are fudged because, you know, a lot of the activity happens in the same desk in the same room. Um, so bottom line, our, our distractibility and, and perhaps the absence of focus or the blurring of lines between work and not work uh, contributes uh, to, to suboptimal decisions. And also, of course, uh, various organizations are gigantic, right? Most banks, a lot of banks, most organizations today operate off uh, something called the principle of least privilege. So, you know, lessons identified have a harder time uh, transforming into lessons learned when the only humans who can actually perceive uh, this issue or, or an issue or a new sort of practice that would be sharp, when those, when those humans have to go through all kinds of uh, permission granting loops to share that information with other people. I'll also call out that it is, uh, you know, in the technology industry, I hear people say uh, human behavior or behavioral data, or uh, let's let's like really shape behavior, and then and then they will proceed, or the briefer will proceed to start talking about devices again and what people mm -hmm. did with their devices. So one thing uh, that I'm excited to say uh, we're seeing a lot more in academia uh, is people looking at like how the human perceives their technology in a way that makes suboptimal decisions. So it's less about, uh, well, we could include a new button or it's bigger. And it's more about creating solutions that like respect the human condition and respect the context in which humans are operating uh, that drive them to make choices that, uh, well, we're trying to drive them to make better choices. Is the mm -hmm. point. Mm. Interesting. So can this be measured? If yeah, we look at the I mean, outcomes well, of what we're trying to get and what we're trying to drive, you know? Well, th this is my favorite part of this, right? It's measure and compare. <laughs> and, and every time I go to meetings, I almost feel a bit draconian where it's like we're talking about a thing that we're going to do. And, uh, and then we actually uh, perhaps are not clear sometimes about the impact of the thing that we're going to do and drawing a straight line between the activity or the learning um, you know, product or the initiative and, and the bank's bottom line. Right, like if we if we just take our technology hats off for a second, um, the things that drive our like organizational value are typically like financial analyst assessments of organizations. And so, what are the things that banks can do to directly impact the way that their organization is evaluated? Well, goodness gracious, you know, when you put that or put when you put what you're doing into the context of how human beings outside of the bank are going to perceive the bank, then it gets a lot easier. Um, I think I, I've actually heard in an earlier podcast, you've had people uh, talk about the importance of uh, connecting initiatives uh, or connecting uh, measurable initiatives to, uh, to like actual um, consequences, right? So the thing we did, like what is the, the impact of the thing we did on the thing that mm -hmm. we care most about? Mm -hmm. So um, ultimately, if, if you start off knowing what you want rather than knowing what you don't want, it's a lot easier to define what you're looking for, discover or ideate or, or whatever on what you think right looks like, and then figure out different ways to promote and push the behavior that you seek rather than telling people like not to do stuff all the time, right? Don't think of a rubber duck on a fire hydrant. Don't do it, Altaz, don't. Or 
you know, I could give you something to actually think about, like do think of a donkey riding a bicycle. Um, and it's effectively like the, the traditional cybersecurity messages, this is not allowed, um, don't do it. And uh, all you've really done is help somebody understand that something isn't allowed. Uh, there's a step missing there and that's the next step, which is helping them figure out how to get to where they wanna be safely. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Well, this this kind of rounds you know the whole discussion and, and as we see where the trends are and where things are moving, um, where do you see this whole idea of the human being at the center of, of security? Like, where do you see this, this going in the future? Are we on the right track here? Do you see more and more work emerging in this space? Well, I, I'm excited to say that at, at least one bank that I could speak for uh, is uh, headed in, in a direction that I think is positive. And, and you know, when I'm at the office, one thing that I uh, use to sort of explain what we do is that we're, we're sales folks, like we're salespeople, uh, except whereas Audi will try to sell you a car, my organization is trying to sell smarter decisions with technology. And it is a sales pitch uh, because like the human being who's about to reuse the same password uh, that they have like for their work account uh, and their Facebook account, or the human being that, uh, you know, wants to just make their life easier by having all of their passwords, one, two, three, or five, six, seven, eight, uh, they need they, this human typically appreciates that what they're doing is not the best idea, but no one's actually taking the time to help them, uh, number one, understand what a better behavior is, and number two, um, you know, like make that behavior easier for them. So I'll actually refer back to some pretty awesome uh, customized advertisement research. You know, if you think back to the, the, the uh, authors and initiators of something called psychological targeting. So this has uh, become famous through custom advertisements, right? Like if you bought something on your phone recently, odds are it was related to, or you were presented with this choice because your phone knows what you're doing. Uh, imagine a future world in which uh, people are um, like, my personality is considered when like tailoring a line of persuasion or a message to convince me to do something. And like the specific most uh, famous research, and, and right now I'm, I'm gonna uh, quote or cite Sandra Matz, who's presently at Columbia University and Michael Kaczynski, who's presently at Stanford. Uh, in 2017, they put out a paper and in the paper, they just talked about um, how to present the exact same call to action to two different types of humans in ways that resonate with those types of humans uh, equally. So I think, you know, one of their examples was, you know, they're pitching a beauty product and they pitch that beauty product to extroverts by saying, hey, uh, you can party all night long. And they pitch that same beauty product to uh, introverts by saying, hey, beauty doesn't need to shout. Let me, let me be clear, it's the same product, okay? Uh, but the line of persuasion that comes right before the call to action speaks to the human soul in a way that generic one size fits all regulator driven messages just miss. Mm. That's interesting. Fascinating. Mark, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. My privilege. Want to learn about what Security Compass has to offer? Check out securitycompass.com slash demo for a free demo today. Want more of the Balancing Act? Be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts for more episodes.